Welcome to Little Known Crime. I'm Chandra Mel. This is part one of a two-part series on the Yakima Reservation in Washington State. I want to discuss something that has been very obvious, I'm sure, for family members with missing persons. I have found a list of missing Indigenous people in Washington State where I live. I wanted to find something about a few of them and give a little background on them as well as when and where they were last seen. However, I could not find a damn thing. It is ignorant of me, I suppose, to have hoped to find something on the web about these individuals besides a name, a missing date, and a case number. I'm sure a few of the listeners are saying, no shit, Chandra. And I get it. No shit. But still, this is upsetting. And all I can do is list these names. The names do almost nothing. You need to see faces and hear about these people to be able to recognize them. This is exactly the problem. This is exactly what we are trying to fight. So, here's what I'm going to do. Just because I only have three pieces of information to give about missing individuals doesn't mean I can give up on spreading the word. At the end of each episode, I am going to give a couple of missing people's information taken directly from the list released from Washington State. Actually, I'll probably only be doing one. That way we can keep it limited and you have one name sticking to you besides the people listed in the episode that we are discussing. For today's episode, I have invited my sister, Jess Patterson, who I call Jessie, but she goes by Jess from everyone else, as a guest on Little Known Crime. Um, also, I just want to say, um, my upstairs neighbor, I think he has hardwood floors and I think he moves furniture to stay active. So you guys might be hearing a lot of that. And I do apologize. There's not really anything I can do. I can only record from home. So just wanted to state that. All right. So I just did the intro before I brought you in. Um, what I'm going to do now is ask if you would introduce yourself a little bit, if there's anything that you would like to say. Okay. Well, my name is Jessica Patterson. Um, I went to college to be a paralegal. Um, did not end up becoming a paralegal because, turns out, never found a lawyer I actually enjoy working with, which is rough. But while I was in college, um, one of the classes that I chose to take as an elective was tribal law. And I realized that tribal law was something that I was significantly passionate about because as I was sitting there in class, I just got really, really angry, like every single class. And it occurred to me that this was the only legal class that I ever took that made me feel something. <laughs> and it gave me the drive to want to help indigenous people um, who do not get the fair end of the stick as far as justice goes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm your sister. Um, and mm -hmm. Uh, I, I am a family man. Yeah, I figured you'd want to give a little bit of a background on, um, 
what education you obtained about the tribal law, because obviously I wouldn't be able to explain that very well. Um, so, so are you ready to get into this, Jesse? Absolutely. Okay. So cut me off at any time. Um, you want to talk about anything, questions, anything. Okay. Okie dokie. All right. So I found the name of one individual that I was going to cover for today's episode. And then I kind of fell down a rabbit hole. So I found the case of Sherry D. Samson Elwell. And upon researching her name, I found a list of women who were murdered in a 12-year span, leading locals of the Yakima Reservation in Washington State to believe a serial killer may be active. The time frame is from the years 1980 to 1992, ending with Elwell's body being discovered. She had been sexually mutilated and strangled, and her body had been left in the snow. She was the last of 11 women until 2005 when another woman was found dead. Her death was, however, deemed inconclusive and therefore is not always included in the lists. So I have also found differing numbers of women to be listed depending on the sources. But I think that it just goes to show how big of an epidemic it really is. There are so many missing and murdered women and girls that they cannot seem to com uh, completely agree on who all should or should not be included on that list. And that's at least speculation on my part. Episodes four and five will be parts one and two, respectively, of the Yakima Nation that I am covering. First, I will cover a bit of information regarding the Yakima Reservation itself. Then I'll go over a couple of articles released in 1993. Part two, or episode five, will consist of information and articles released beginning in 2001, wrapping up the information that I am able to find on this case, and then relisting the names of the women who are considered on that list, and also hearing from the FBI. I want to state that the spelling of Yakima is distinguished by the original spelling of the word, not the spelling of how they uh, spell like the city with an I. So Yakima originally is spelled Y-A-K-A-M-A, -A, so all A's. And so that is how the spelling is for the Yakima Nation and Reservation and people. The following quotation is from the Britannica website discussing the Yakima people. And I quote, North American Indian tribe that lived along the Columbia, Yakima, and Wenatchee rivers is what is now the South Central region of the U.S. state of Washington. As with many other Sahaptan-speaking Plateau Indians, the Yakima were primarily salmon fishers before colonization. In the early 21st century, they continued to be involved in wildlife management and fisheries. End quote. Further information about the Yakima Nation is taken from the website titled Indian Leadership for Indian Health. And I quote, the Yakima Indian Reservation is a Native American reservation of the federally recognized tribe, the Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Nation. Now, I am quite possibly going to be mispronouncing some of the um, upcoming 
names, titles, and words, so please forgive me. The tribe is made up of Klickitat, Palus, Walla Walla, Wanapalm, Wenatchee, Wishram, and Yakima people. The reservation is located on the east side of the Cascade Mountains in southern Washington state. According to the United States Census Bureau, the reservation covers 2,185.94 square miles, and the population in 2000 was 31,799. Can I clarify something on that? Yes. So, as it mentioned, Yakima is one of the federally recognized tribes. There, as of 2021, are 574 recognized tribes in federally recognized tribes in the United States. There are still more than 200 tribes that do not have federal recognition, which means there are more than 200 tribes worth of indigenous people who do not get federal rights, Mm -hmm. according to what they're supposed to have. So it's not uncommon for larger tribes, federally recognized tribes, to kind of adopt other tribes to make sure that they're still getting the rights that they deserve. Okay. Well, the limited rights that are afforded to indigenous people. Right, right, right. So do you know how they would adopt them or what, like, are they claiming them as part of their tribe? Yeah. Which is why it mentioned right there, Yakima tribe is built up of these tribes because it's just kind of, a group of tribes that ended up conglomerating together so that they could get that federal recognition. Okay. That's good. That's, I mean, that's working together to find the loophole in the system, which unfortunately Mm -hmm. is something that I guess they have to do, but if it works, it works. That's good. Yeah. There's still a lot of people who are left completely without anything though, because their tribes aren't recognized and they don't have any, like, parent tribes to run to. So that's another thing to be aware of. So the Yakima is a Native American tribe with nearly 10,851 members inhabiting Washington State. So to accommodate an insatiable white demand for land and resources, Washington Territorial Governor and Indian Agent Isaac Stevens concluded the Yakima Treaty with the Yakima and 13 other tribes and bands on June 9, 1855. In signing the treaty, the Indians ceded 11.5 million acres to the United States. Although the Yakima themselves ceded 10,828,800 acres to the U.S. government, they reserved their right to fish hunt, and gather within the ceded area. The tribes and bands also agreed to move to a new reservation and receive federal benefits, as you mentioned. The treaty stipulated two years to allow the tribes and bands to relocate on the new reservation, but Governor Stevens threw open Indian lands for white settlers less than two weeks after the treaty was signed. So that makes me wonder... Going out of the quotations here, this is me speaking, because I listened to another podcast and I can't remember the name, but they talked about this same thing happening in Oregon, probably around the same time. So what happened when those white settlers came into that area then? So that is still considered reservation land. 
um, it's gotten to the point where um, even if you purchase a house on reservation land, it is leased land. You are legally not allowed to own the land itself, not allowed to make any structural changes or major changes to the land itself without permission from the owners, which is the tribe. Okay. Um, it's still an invasive practice for non-indigenous people to purchase on indigenous land but it is an extremely common practice and it sounds like it has been since the beginning okay yeah i just wonder what violence and this is pure speculation but like we're because my imagination with my imagination my speculation with this is when he threw open the lands the white settlers came in and if you had the indigenous people, say, fighting back or standing their ground, well, they probably, I imagine, did not have anyone to back them up. Mm -mm, of course not. And even at this point, there's like, so indigenous people, non-indigenous people living on indigenous land is very controversial for a few different reasons. Not, And I'm sure it's all stemmed from things that have happened back then because a lot of the laws that are around today have not evolved since the 1800s. They are literally the same laws, no adaptations in place since the 1800s for the federal people, for the indigenous people. But if there is a non-indigenous person living on indigenous land and they commit a crime, the indigenous people cannot do anything to, to, bring this person to justice. They have to hand them over to the federal government. And most of the time for smaller things, the federal government won't do anything. So, so that definitely it's, very, it's very controversial, um, especially for indigenous folks, for non-indigenous people to be on their land. Yeah. I can see how there's, there's an immediate lack of trust. Mm-hmm. Because they can't even protect themselves or their rights when you're on their Definitely. land. Yeah. And there's been a lot of cases where I've heard of where the federal government won't do anything. So the indigenous tribe will reach out to either the city or county that are nearby and ask them. And they'll just claim that they don't have, you know, any jurisdiction there. So this person will literally get off scot-free because no one can claim jurisdiction and no jurisdiction on indigenous land is such a huge point of contest. Okay. Always. That's really awful. Mm -hmm. It really kind of paints a picture um, and shows like once you're on reservation land for any reason, because we have reservations, you know, in Western Washington. Where we live. Yeah. yeah. So that just kind of shows you that when you are on a reservation property, like I don't go around breaking laws, but at the same time, it's a reminder of be more respectful, be extra cautious and understand that there might be a lack of trust because they know that you as a white person who is not a part of the tribe can get away with like anything. Mm -hmm. And you have to respect yeah. that because that's, that's a, that could be a fear or a concern that they're, they're, having to keep at the front of their mind also we should probably refrain from um the term white person because there are a lot of indigenous people who are naturally paler okay so what do you what would be so it'd be indigenous versus non-indigenous non-indigenous okay okay i will let me make a note 
when I went on my trip with a bunch of different tribes a couple of years ago in college, there was a family that I was really close with and they happened to be white skinned. And she, one of the younger girls used to complain to me all the time about the struggles she went through because she would try to show her like tribal pride and people would basically just be like, shut up. You're just a stupid white girl. Like what, what are you even doing? And then the trouble she faced with, approaching other indigenous people and trying to show up right there and then she would get turned away because you're not indigenous you're pale skinned so yeah that that's a whole nother struggle that that happens there well thank you for telling me about that i've made a note here on my board and i'm going to make an effort to make that change i'm going to turn i'm going to move this down so it's going to make sound for a minute okay so getting back into it if you're ready Mm -hmm. okay the Yakima chief, Kamayakin, called upon the tribes to oppose the declaration. Some of the tribes joined forces under Kamayakin. The Indians managed to fight off U.S. soldiers. And I, I want to remind you that when I'm saying Indians here, it is going off of the actual quotation. It's also federally, um, like the legal term for indigenous people is Indian, which is fucked, but it's the legal term. So it's what you'll see in a lot of legal documents and a lot of even uh, indigenous websites. They'll use that terminology because it is the legal term. Okay. All right. That's good to know. That's why you'll see it so often. So the Indians managed to fight off U.S. soldiers for about three years in the uprising called the Yakima War, 1855 to 1858. Other Indians in the territory rose up as well. In September of 1858, at the Battle of Four Lakes near Spokane, the Indians were decisively defeated. Kamayakin escaped to Canada, but two dozen other leaders were apprehended and executed. Now, mind you, part of this was because they opened up. (laughs) If not the whole reason they did this, they rose up was because they, they, they opened up the land. They basically lied to the indigenous people saying you have two years to move to this, whatever reservation they were going to move to. And that was the agreement. But then he opened up the land literally two weeks after it was signed. So they had every right and reason, in my opinion, to rise up and then they apprehend and execute the leaders. So that's awful. Um, Most of the Yakima and other tribes then moved on to the reservation where numerous Sahaptan dialects, Chinookan, Salish, and English languages converged. They led a harrowing existence. White agents ran the reservation intending to assimilate the internees into American society. A boarding school was established at Fort Simcoe on the reservation to educate and indoctrinate Indian children. Confinement on the reservation contributed to a social breakdown, ill health, alcoholism, and such other problems as high infant mortality, end quote. Do you want to know what happened to people Please who refused to send their children to these boarding schools? The government would send essentially child protective services out there. And find reasons why these indigenous people were not fit parents, take the children, adopt them out to white families, give them 
or to non-indigenous families, give them non-indigenous, non-indigenous names. And then they would be raised from very young ages to be non-indigenous children. So similar to what happened in Canada um, in like the 1970s or whatever, where they, they did the same thing and adopted these children out to American families from Canada and people there's, there's a podcast called finding Cleo specifically about this whole problem that happened where children just went missing. They, they, they were essentially technically legally kidnapped. My, um, my legal instructor for the, uh, tribal law class that I was in her I think it was either her mother her or her grandmother was one of those children from the American side of it that you just mentioned Mm -hmm. yeah and they she apparently their family had to struggle to refine their heritage I well I can say I can imagine but I really can't she she is now a um very well-respected indigenous judge well good for her that's amazing yeah and teaches tribal law in college she's an incredible woman it's just it's so hard to imagine and this is something people go through throughout the world and throughout history where people invade a land and then they try to push their practices onto the people who originate from that land or are in that land already and that's horrifying because they they do it violently. Inevitably, it's always violent. And they, who are you to say that your belief system is more correct than the next belief system? It's very European. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. All right. So are you ready to get to the context of this episode? I'm so ready. All right. As I stated before... Between the years of 1980 and 1992, the Yakima Nation Reservation saw more than 11 suspicious deaths of females, causing some to fear a serial killer working on or in the reservation. Here are the 12 females consistently named throughout the sources I have found. And I want to say ahead of time, spelling was not consistent throughout websites that I found. Again, my pronunciation cannot be guaranteed. So the first person, Sheila Pearl Lewis, who was 33, was found August 3rd, 1980. Losora Yvette Eli was 19 when she was found on February 2nd, 1982. Celestine Spencer, 21, was found on November 11th, 1982. Clydell Alice Simpson, who was 25 years old, was found on December 28, 1986. Babette Crystal Green, who was 26, was found during the summer of 1987. She was actually from the Warm Springs tribe of Oregon. Teresa R. Stahi, or Stahl, depending on the website, was 25 she was found on July 7th, 1987. Either Janice or Genesee Marie Wilson, who was 20, was found on August 8th, 1987. 
There is an unidentified doe in her 20s or 30s found on February 16th, 1988. Roselia or Rosella, depending on the website, Lou Tuli So Happy was 31 when she was found on March 13th, 1989. Joanne Betty Wyman John was 44 when her body was found on February 2nd, 1991. Sherry D. Sampson Elwell was 30 when her body was found on December 30th, 1992. And finally, Alice Ida Looney was found on November 30th, 2005. So those are the 12 main women that are revolving around this case, I guess you could say. Now, when I'm reading from articles, 13 is the number that is often put out there. And so I just want to note that I, I, I recognize that that number is not matching with the information given so far. So the article written in the Seattle Times dated January 31st, 1993, states the following. Remains of 13 women have been found across the vast Yakima Indian Reservation since 1980. All died violently. Most were Indian. None of the cases have been solved, and some wonder if the slayings are the work of a serial killer. The sexually mutilated body of the latest victim, Sherry D. Samson Elwell, was found December 30th off Old Maid Road in a section of the 1.3 million acre reservation close to non-Indians she was strangled. Melford Hall, who oversaw criminal investigations here for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, says the killings were part of why he retired in 1989 after 22 years. The deaths still haunt him. They'll probably say he doesn't know what he's talking about, Hall said recently, but then you look at all these names. Eleven of the 13 victims were Native Americans. Most were born and raised on the reservation and abused alcohol. Most were found in remote areas where time, weather, and animals wiped away evidence, Hall said. Most of the victims were in their 20s. At least eight were mothers. Foul play in three of the deaths has been tentatively ruled out by some investigators, but not by others. Hall suspects alcohol is a key in the slayings. My own opinion is this guy sits at a tavern someplace and waits for an intoxicated woman and grabs her, he said. The tribal police department refused interviews on the slayings. FBI spokesman Dick Thurston in Seattle said all the deaths were investigated by federal agents. Except for the Elwell slaying, all the cases are closed, though they could be reopened if new information surfaced. Hall complained that there has been a lack of coordinated effort by law enforcement agencies. A lot of times we would call the FBI and they'd say, just send us a report. They spent millions of dollars over there on the Green River serial killings and wouldn't spend anything over here. The Yakima County Sheriff's Office has sought assistance in the reservation slayings from experts on serial killers. Detectives in 1988 asked the Green River Task Force for help in at least one of the deaths. Among the obstacles to solving the case is the, last, is the lack of missing persons reports said Sheriff's Deputy Dave Johnson. It is not unusual for tribal members to leave the area without informing relatives or friends. Some victims were missing days, weeks, or even years before their bodies were found. 
It's kind of like the Green River victims, many of whom were prostitutes, Johnson said. You have individuals with no permanent address. He said that there has been speculation that deaths could be connected. End quote. This is a perfect example of what I referenced earlier. As far as things that happen on the reservation don't get paid attention to. Nobody has the jurisdiction, and the people that have the jurisdiction don't care. I mean, it literally compares the same time frame the Green River killings were happening, and that made national headlines. And honestly, before you mentioned it, I've never heard of this. The Yakima tribe, potential serial killer, never heard of it. Yeah. And you grew up around me. Learning about all kinds of crime, unfortunately, even though you didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was not a, a willing learn. I did not consent. <laughs> there was something else I wanted to... Where Now, where I'm trying to find it. They mentioned... It said that all of the cases were closed except for Elwell's. Wasn't that the 2005 one? No, Elwell was the one in 1992 who was sexually mutilated and strangled. And they said... Well, yeah, it'd be hard to say that one. It, it would be really hard for them to be like, there was no foul play here. But here's the thing. Problematic. I ha- I'm not going to discuss the actual um, causes of death for each individual until the next episode. But there are shootings and there are stabbings for some of these victims. That is how they died. So I would like to know specifically why they felt that they could say that all of the other cases were closed. How could you possibly close the case without a- without finding the perpetrator? Yeah. So I did pull I think I want to go ahead. I think I want to look into that a little bit more on how that's standardly handled because this is something I have a lot less experience with. Mm-hmm. And see if there are other other cases that are unsolved that are considered closed. Um, that's actually something that uh, you don't know yet, but the mother of a victim in a previous episode makes very clear you don't know yet because that this recording is before the release of that episode. But I'll go ahead and state it anyways. This woman, uh, the mother of one of the victims stated that There are so many missing indigenous women and girls out there that are not being reported because the police have claimed that the case is solved, that they, um, missing or murdered, I should say, um, excuse me, murdered, but they, they say that they already know what happened to that person when in fact it's not conclusive. Yeah. So that's very much an issue. You're right. I don't think we'll ever get a good generalized idea of how many cases are actually out there. I also read another article from later that year, so April of 1993. So let me start telling you a little bit about what was discussed in that article. Rumors began swirling around the 1.3 million acre reservation that there was an indigenous hating serial killer on the loose. There were others who blamed the deaths on alcoholism and late-night violence. One thing was conclusive, however, among many of the tribe's 8,319 members, that the FBI didn't seem to care. 
there was a general feeling that they weren't doing enough, even though there is an agency that was specifically responsible for investigating major crimes on reservations. Vice Chairman of the Yakima Indian Nation, Harry Smiskin, was quoted as saying, Anywhere else in the U.S., when you have these kinds of killings, they will immediately put together a task force. But people here think that because it is on an Indian reservation and involves Indian people, the FBI just doesn't care. The FBI was not convinced that the killings were related or that they were even all homicides. In February of 1993, the FBI was asked to come to the community and explain what they knew about the killings, but no one showed up. A Yakima native who owns the Cougar Den restaurant, a popular spot in town, was quoted as saying, I think the attitude among the FBI is, they're just Indians, just alcoholics, so who cares? This is sounding like a common belief among many sources, and I can see how this can build to make people believe there isn't much hope in getting these cases solved, and for the reservation to have a lack of trust in the force meant to solve these cases. So in April of that same year, the FBI sent Special Agent William Gore out to open up communication. They said that they are not neglecting the tribe and that the reason it took four hours for an agent to reach the scene of Elwell's body is because of a blizzard. They stated that they did not show up to the February meeting because it was not a formal invitation, which is disputed by the community leaders who invited them. They also said that because some of the natives did not speak with them, it made it more difficult to investigate the cases, which naturally, yes, it would. But there's, there's distrust for a lot of reasons, so you are going to have people who don't want to speak with you. But you have to make the effort to, not to say that they didn't, because I wasn't there, obviously, but you have to make the effort to show them that you are here to work with them and for them to solve these cases for their family, for their tribal members. The following quotes are taken directly from an article from the New York Times written by Timothy Egan on April 18th, 1993. And I quote, We anguish over the same things, Mr. Gore told the Indians, but many in the audience were unmoved. Some were outright furious. As I sit here listening to you talk, I feel like I'm being stonewalled, said Cheryl Cloud Moses. I have two nieces here and I'm scared. I worry for their future. Ms. Moses said the FBI owes it to these women who no longer walk this earth to solve these crimes. Though the reservation is large, spreading over miles of irrigated farmland, the Indian community is relatively closed to outsiders, several tribe members said. In Mr. Ramsey's view, the deaths of the 13 women on the Yakima reservation and a general increase in violence are all part of the same problem. It affects not just reservations, but most of America. But whereas other communities can beef up their police departments or pressure local law enforcement into action, the Indians have no choice but to rely on the FBI, which maintains no permanent residence on the reservation. Linda King, a non-Indian cattle farmer who lives on the reservation, says, This is the only major law enforcement we've got, and we're simply not a big priority for them. Mr. Gore said the FBI would do a case-by-case -case analysis of the deaths, and he promised another meeting later this month with tribal law enforcement officials who are responsible for day-to-day -day law enforcement, but not for the investigation of major crimes. End quote. It seems to me that there's a really clear disconnect between 
the federal government who has charged themselves with the care and protection of these indigenous people and the indigenous people themselves who feel like they are being abandoned basically and even the people the non-indigenous folk who live on the reservations are actively speaking out and agreeing like as part of yeah the the neighborhood the society of the reservation they are essentially abandoned except for day-to-day law enforcement why are you stressed out because this this is stressful what people have to deal with day to day like we have absolutely no idea what people around us are going through every day and have been going through for hundreds of years this was essentially day one of my tribal law class was taking all of the information even the information that we as washingtonians growing up we got a lot more information on like native tribes and some of the stuff that they've gone through in the ha- in history and whatnot but it take it took everything that we learned through our childhood in elementary school middle school and high school and basically shot it to hell and said yeah these things happened if you want to like watercolor it real quick but this is what actually happened and this is what still yeah. happens People want you to think that, like, oh, they're all fine and happy because they have their casinos and, you know, they're well off and shit, but they struggle daily still. And those fucking casinos only exist so that they can support the non-federally recognized people or the tribes that don't have enough income. They, They get all of these stereotypes slapped onto them and we assume that they're all fine and happy, but the reality is these people are still marginalized regularly. They're dealing with racism from the 1800s that didn't have the opportunity to adapt because no one cared enough with enough power to adapt them. The people who are in charge don't give a shit. Yeah, that's clear. So yeah, it's extremely... That's exactly why I left my first class angry. Because it was like... It was like growing up, you're told, you're taught to be infuriated with our ancestors for slavery. And you're taught to believe that the slavery has ended. And then you've got this, like, these rose-colored glasses that are put on you so that you can't actually see everything that's still fucking happening. All you get told is, oh yeah, we're doing so much better, we're doing so much better, but don't look this way. Uh Uh-huh. And and there's not enough information. There's not enough to teach you about why. Like, you don't hear very much about them. There's not enough to tell you. Like, so I had a friend in one of my classes mention that her husband tried to get a job on a reservation. And he was to- told no because he wasn't indigenous. And he was infuriated. And he was like, well, this is racism. How can you only hire indigenous people and not me? I'm offering the same if not higher quality of skill like I have the education for this and they went years thinking wow this is so unjust so wrong and they don't realize that these people have to protect their own they have to keep these jobs for the people who desperately need them they aren't going to be able to to find that kind of accommodation elsewhere like it's constant it is still very much alive the level of injustice that is being cast upon the people that are just remembered for the fucking Oregon Trail. Like, that shit's yeah. still real. Mm-hmm. So this has been a an upsetting start to this case. Um, 
So I'm going to wrap this episode up. We're going to end this part of um, the Yakima Nation. And for the next episode, we will be discussing the more modern times starting in about, I believe the first article was in 2001, um, more updated information about what happened and what was found. So before I end it, I do also want to thank you, Jesse, for being on this episode. Um, And you are still going to be on the next one with me, right? Yeah. Thank you for inviting me, by the way. Of course. Of course. I want to, as promised, list a missing girl from Washington State. Her name is Jasmine Amaya Viel. She's 16 years old and she was last seen on January 6th of 2022. Contact the Federal Way Police Department at 253-835-6700 if you have any information regarding her whereabouts. I was fortunate enough in this case to find a picture of Jasmine, so I will include that on the Instagram post for this episode. Check out my Instagram, at Little Known Crime, where I will be posting photos from today's episode along with contact information for the police department. Also, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this podcast with friends and family. This is a small way that we can create a louder voice for the victims and families. Furthermore, I will be adding the link to my page where you can see my episodes, send me a message, and support my podcast. Supporting this podcast can mean as little as 99 cents a month. If you are someone who has been affected by the missing and murdered Indigenous women, men, and children epidemic, are a survivor or family member, and would like to tell your story on this podcast, please reach out to me at littleknowncrime at gmail.com. Hopefully, the listenership will grow to a capacity that gets the word out to a wider public. Podcasts have proven to be a widely popular platform for many topics, true crime being a huge one. If we can get more people to listen to these stories, hopefully we can find answers and make changes in the way that these cases are being handled. Thank you for listening. I'm Chandra Mel. And this is Little Known Crime.